um sorry hi leadhead thank you so much for being here you are the author the owner of the leadhead youtube channel where you make uh complicated in-depth and immensely introspective video essays largely about narrative-based video games but also stretching onto subjects such as films and occasionally music um thank you so much for being here oh yeah i'm happy to be here it's uh that's a generous description i'd say that's more me when i'm at my best a lot of what i do is uh sort of more the type of video you could find on other channels, like writing on games and stuff. Uh, you know, there's only so many games I can go that in-depth on, uh, so it's kind of like a weekly struggle of just hoping I find a game that makes for a really good Leadhead video, and then just doing what I can the rest of the time. <laughs> but I make it work, for the most part. Um, awesome. Hot. Well, I was going to say, um, I worry that you put yourself down there, because I think, while broadly speaking in terms of uh, narrative-based vi- video essays, to do with games in some ways there are similarities between you and other channels i think you immensely differ in terms of uh how how much you involve your personal experiences um to what degree the introspection of your life and compared to the games in which you're experiencing um which allows people to connect with you on a far deeper level rather than videos which just analyze the games inherently without uh kind of external experiences yeah, see, I, I just think that that's really important to the kind of stuff I want to do, because at the very beginning of my channel, I started out with, uh, in my channel description, the very bottom, and I, I think it's probably still there, it says, games aren't toys. And this all arose from just, I don't know, spending a lot of time playing multiplayer stuff with friends and all that, and seeing I was sort of, I don't want to say taking it more seriously than they were, but sort of putting it on a higher pedestal than they were, I guess would be the best way to put it. And, you know, I've I'm a big believer in the view of just art as a mirror you know as soon as the artist is finished with it it's no longer about them it's about you the viewer the individual and um you know if we're going to talk about games like they're a serious art form which they are uh i just think it's super important to give them that credit you know that they aren't made so egotistically and that they can be about you and you can bounce your personality off of them and learn about yourself so you know i can't tell you what metal gear solid 2 is actually about I can just tell you what it's about to me, and I think that that's more valid than any, you know, concrete, 100% objective definition or explanation. Hmm. I really, really like that. Um, okay, well, let's talk about in terms of solidifying the definition of games as uh, art, and very much the games are not toys. Let's talk about a very serious one, actually, which you've covered, which is I have no mouth and I must scream. Uh, just for mm. those who might not be quite as informed on the subject, do you mind telling us a little bit about what that is and why that is so demonstrative of this theory? Well, it's an interesting case because um, it's a point-and-click adventure, and usually point-and-click adventures are... It's it's kind of like what FPSs became in, like, 2011 or so, where it's like, okay, at the time, this is just the default gameplay formula and anything else you do, that's where you express yourself. Um but I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream is based on a book by the same name by Harrison Elliott, I think. Um, and basically, it's just this really dark story about an AI who's, you know, killed all of humanity and kept the last couple people who he really hates to basically torture them endlessly. And the game gets this across through what we call ludology, which is just enlightenment through gameplay, basically. You know, lewd as in luminate, lewd as in play. Um, and in the case of I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream... There isn't too much of that stuff, uh, that is to say, there isn't too much of the gameplay syncing up with 
what the story is trying to get across or what the thing as a whole is trying to get across, you know, in your head. But there is a little bit of it. One example I especially like is that, I forget his name, but um, one of the last people you play as is like the snooty rich guy who um, suffers from schizophrenia. And by this point, pretty much everything you've done in the game has sort of backfired on you in one way or another. And it's a multi-choice game. Like, there are multiple paths you can play through and multiple endings. So you're really paranoid by this point that you're making the wrong decisions. And um, the game capitalizes on this at the end. The fourth character you play, this schizophrenic guy, the first thing that happens when you start playing as him is an eagle flies across the screen and just drops an arrow on the ground pointing you to go this way. And that's just like completely meaningless symbolism it's like you got your head searching for patterns and deeper meaning and things that are completely random so it captures that schizophrenia really well and then it capitalizes on the fear and the paranoia you have about the game tricking you into making the wrong decision because i bet you every single player when they started this immediately tried to go the other way from where the arrow was pointing but that's not an option you have to follow that arrow so that's like a really good sort of basic but well done example of how you know gameplay doesn't just have to be for fun gameplay can be there to create this sort of tension create these thoughts in your head that are relevant to the thoughts that the narrative is trying to get across therefore you have ludo play narrative story harmony i really really like that it's funny because i was i was actually going to ask you um a little later on to go into the definitions of that because that's such a huge part of uh, what you do but you've, uh, yeah you've smashed it's a the very very the floaty term <laughs> i think i think that the correct term is ludonarrative synchronicity but i uh i don't like that term it's not that it doesn't work but harmony sort of drives home the art angle of it which is exactly what i'm trying to get across and i always i'm, I'm rambling now but i always like to uh, go to this example of you know, if you want a good song, the music needs to fit the lyrics, right? So something like um, When I'm 64 is a good example. It's the song about just being like hopeful about the future. So the music is like, da, 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 it sounds so friendly and like optimistic. So, you know, the lyrics fit the music. And in the case of uh, a game, the music is like the gameplay, the abstract part, and the narrative is the lyrics, the literal part. So those two things need to work together. And a, a lot of games just don't care about that and you don't really get connected to the story or whatever the game is trying to do as a result and that's where you get that famously pissed on term ludonarrative dissonance why is it why do you think that it is famously pissed on as you say uh i just see it getting mocked a whole lot like i, I remember um Shortly after Folding Ideas made his video called Ludo Narrative Dissonance that sort of exposed the larger gaming community to this idea, like not long after Jim Sterling, who I love, uh, I guess Stephanie Sterling now, um, made a video called like Ludo Narrative Disco Biscuits or something, just like making fun of it and saying it was like a bad way of judging games. And from a critical perspective, okay, that's totally valid. Like, you know if a game isn't fun to play and like sucks and you hate it who cares if it's all deep and artsy like gone home would be a good example for me i like some walking sims i do not like gone home because the, it just feels so bad to play i hate the way that just walking around feels and therefore like okay sure maybe walking around a, an abandoned house finding notes is very relevant to the feelings you want the player to be having but uh if just walking around doesn't feel good, then you don't have anything for yourself. And 
that's a perfectly fine way of objectively criticizing games, but, like, who the fuck wants to be objective? Oh, can I swear on this? Yeah, of course, yeah. Okay, who the fuck wants to be objective? <laughs> nice, nice. Well, it in, in some instances, it's going to go a little deeper than that, because, of course, it's not simply, in this instance, The Walking, right, in Gone Home, because one of your most popular videos is about Firewatch, which, of course, for those who haven't played it, is yeah. a game, it's essentially a hiking sim. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, I think you can make The Walking Simulator thing work really well. I mean, Death Stranding isn't a walking sim. I'll, I'll get into Death Stranding later. I'm sure it'll come up at this conversation, <laughs> but uh, an example of a walking sim with pretty good ludonarrative uh, harmony would be The Beginner's Guide or The Stanley Parable, but that's almost to the point of not being a walking sim. In The Beginner's Guide, all you do is walk. You walk through the levels of a fictional game creator called Coda, who the narrator, Davey Reedon, who made the game, uh, is talking about how he sort of obsessed over the deeper meaning of this guy's games and made him hate games, uh, game creation as a result. Sort of it's sort of a big analogy for Death of the Author, which I didn't even know what would, what that was until everyone in my comments said it was basically that. Um, but, you know, it gets across some really good moments in just the walking around format by having uh, moments like... I forget what the game is called, you know, the game within the game. But there's this one really great moment at the end, I think it's called The Maze, where you are just going through this big puzzle and it's like the game itself was not meant to be finished. So the narrator just sort of gives you some shortcuts so that you can see the end. And there's like a moment where you just have to try like 10,000 combinations on a padlock until eventually the narrator just says, you know, screw it, I'll just show you the solution. Or um, another bit where there's this bridge or there's this maze with invisible walls and it makes this horrible sound and teleports you back to the front as soon as you touch any of them. It's all this stuff that really says, like, get the fuck out of my game, you know? And it's being done in some big meta way in the, in, um, in the beginner's guide because it's a game within a game within a game, whatever. But say the maze was just a game on its own, that would be effective, if not critically fun, you know? So walking sims are not inherently lacking any ludology, but I do think that in general there's kind of just a lower ceiling as to what you can and can't do within one. It reminded me of the video that you made about Undertale, of which Toby Fox is critiquing uh, people, particularly data miners, who go into the files and implementing his own, um, almost his own taunts at people who do that. Mm -hmm. as a way to, to, to break the game. And I thought your analysis of that was immensely deep, far deeper than um, others, at least on the subject that I've noticed. Yeah, it's uh, that's, a, that's a video of mine that uh, sort of, at least in the comments, you get like a lot of snarky comments, which is understandable. I clickbaited the shit out of that one with the title, <laughs> Nobody's Ever Going to Finish Undertale. You just, that's how it goes. You got to do it, guys. But um, yeah, basically my idea there was just you know, finishing Undertale goes beyond beating the game, it goes beyond data mining, it goes beyond understanding who WD Gaster is by watching MatPat videos. It's this thing where Toby Fox is always going to be one step ahead of us, and therefore we will never truly beat the game. We will never surpass the game, I guess you could say. Um, because no matter how many times you beat it, no matter how many times you use save editors or whatever, there's always some little message from Toby Fox saying, I knew you were going to do this and I accounted for it. You haven't bested me yet, gaming community. <laughs> so I just think that's a really clever way of uh, kind of working everything that a game can be into your core point. 
Mm. I like it as well because obviously um, we get so few things nowadays genuinely new because we know mm-hmm. movies far. We know movies are coming along far before we see the trailer. We same with a lot of music or um, comparable media, and it's a shame that a lot of say secrets in games rarely ever stay secrets. Um, particularly with the example that you linked. Where it's essentially a audio file of Toby of Toby Fox and uh, a character saying, "Please do not leak this on the internet. Like, don't spoil it, guys. Like, some secrets mm-hmm. are meant to be kept and save it for those few who just enjoy it. But on the flip side, is that yeah, yeah, is that just gatekeeping? Who knows? Well, see, here's the thing: is there's educational value to that stuff. Like, what I do, and I've talked about this before. I in fact, my first beginner's guide video a year, two years ago, before I remade it and had a completely different opinion, was basically really critical of myself because I'm, I'm like, okay, in my MGS2 video, I established that I think that the creator's perspective on a work of art is basically worthless in terms of understanding what it means because art is subjective, art's a mirror, like I said earlier, and what matters more is your opinion on it. And so every time some asshole like me goes and gives you a deep explanation of what a work of art means to me, I am tainting your experience of it and sort of undermining how little it can mean or how much it can mean to you. I'm I'm undermining it. Uh, but I've sort of moved away from that because, again, I do think it's educational and I think it's important that I establish to people who like play games don't really care about this stuff that they can think about it like this and they can genuinely learn important ass lessons about who they are and how they process things and just how they think from playing games the same as they can with books or movies or whatever um like yeah okay i've undermined metal gear solid 2 by doing a video on it but i've also opened a whole lot of people's minds to a new way of thinking about games or not a new way but just a different way and I know that sounds incredibly egotistical, but I've, I I live in a small town, but I've never seen anybody thinking like this or talking about these things like this. Pretty much the only guy I've ever seen who does, like, anything like what I do is the man who actually inspired me to get into YouTube, Noah Caldwell Gervais. Mm. Do you think then by sharing kind of these experiences and what you do on the internet, there's a greater access to the kind of... Uh, pretty niche community that enjoys narrative games in this manner it's allowed you essentially to socialize outside of your hometown it has definitely i mean i said in my um 100k subscribers video that like you know again i grew up in a small town like all my gaming buddies they just grew up like you know doing like literally 360 quick scope death matches on like rust and modern warfare 2 and uh you know, this thing has sort of, I've always felt like I do about games for as long as I can remember that they're this deep thing that needs to be thought about seriously. Um, but I never met anybody like that. But when I hit my 100k sub milestone and made that video, it's like, okay, here's a hundred thousand people who think similarly about this stuff. And that, uh, just made me feel like less lonely than I ever have in my life. It's, it's a crazy thought. And then on the discord server, I mean, Discord's more oriented towards younger people, so there are, like, a lot of kids who just want to meme and stuff, which that's fine, but, I mean, there's a bunch of those there, too, and it's like, wow, here's actual people who, like, want to talk with me about the deeper meaning of games, and that's, like, something I never thought I'd have. I think it says a lot about the amount, I guess, simply that you have to offer on the matter, because it's complicated stuff. I mean, one of my 
favorite examples is everybody was aware, everything from reviewers to very young gamers, right, that there was something off narrative-wise about Dishonored 2. It wasn't just the tech, it wasn't just the bad launch. We knew that there was something weird with it. It did not live up to the first, but people really struggled to put their finger on it from and i've and even back at the time i read a lot of reviews people really struggled to put their finger on it and then you came out with a half half an hour video explaining uh i believe the title was dishonored to missing the magic and you nailed yeah, yeah. precisely what it was lacking yeah i mean that I got this thing where it feels like i kind of bullshit my way through a lot of my essays like i don't <laughs> even do second drafts most of the time and I kind of hated that at first. I did all my first ideas, which I loved and I've been thinking about for years, so those weren't really scuffed at all. But later on, like, basically over the last two years, it kind of feels like just about every script I wrote had, like, a little bit of bullshitting. And I don't mean lying, I just mean not having it really planned out from the get-go. I would have, like, a sort of word cloud of what I wanted to talk about, but I wouldn't really know how I'd tie it all together. And then just through writing, I would figure it out. And I guess that's what I call bullshitting. But that's sort of... <laughs> in a way, if you ask me, makes it more pure. Because again, these videos are about me. These videos are about like how I was affected and what I learned about myself through these games. And planning out what you're going to learn about yourself is not in the spirit of that at all. But with the Dishonored thing, that's one of those not-so-artsy videos where I'm just getting to the nitty-gritty, talking about mechanics, trying to be more critical about what makes something fun or not fun. And that was really just a result of, like, Dishonored 1 is easily in my top 10 games of all time. I've played it 50 times at least. I know that game, like, better than I know my family's house. Um, <laughs> and so while I also had a very, very, very hard time for years trying to figure out what exactly wasn't clicking with me about Dishonored 2, even though it's a great game, I just eventually stumbled upon it and it was just this broad level design thing where the player's experience is not railroaded at all to the point of feeling completely void of intentions or like a way to play that makes it the most fun or makes it the most smooth or the most coordinated it just feels uh and i mean i guess i'm just going over what i said in the video summarizing it but it just feels like uh not memorable because no decision has any more weight than any other decision which is kind of a consequence of open world design in general if you ask me it's like i said in my first ever video second ever video about far cry 3 okay so that's something very much on the kind of technical analysis side of things uh let's go back to when you were talking about the kinds of um friends and the social circles that this kind of thing opened up to and you actually quoted in one of your videos that a line that you often say to your friends is go through life as if you're going for the good ending. <laughs> uh, would you like to chat about that a little more? Because I think it's a very good quote. Uh, yeah, sure. I um, When I was very young, which I don't even consider this an RPG anymore, but the first RPG I ever played was Fallout 3. Um, and this was like one of the first times I ever had like a quote-unquote deep thought for a game. Granted, it was deep for a 12-year-old, but whatever. But I was just thinking like, okay, so... You're telling me even if I don't have, like, a strong character, I can talk my way through this, or I can lockpick my way through this, or sneak my way through this, or whatever? Okay, I guess anybody can sort of go through life as long as they have the right play style, or whatever, no matter what their skills are. That's like a 12-year-old's thought. It's whatever. Um, but this eventually sort of cascaded into, like, 
You know, every time I'm playing a game where I'm, like, going for the good ending, I'm just a fucking angel. Like, I'm donating to the poor. I'm not taking, like, rewards for the jobs I do. I'm always, like, just being so nice, never, like, bigoted or anything. No matter what, I'm just doing what is the obviously good guy option. And I'm just like, well, why not just do that in real life, too? Like, it'll make you feel pretty fucking good about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> it's as simple as that, really. It's not like any grand, profound thing. Do the thing that's, like, obviously the right thing to do as if it was a binary choice in a, in a poorly written video game. And things will work out for you. If nothing else, you'll feel pretty good on your deathbed, which is enough for me. <laughs> and you said it's not profound. Uh, I, think the, I think it's immensely profound because... Uh, what is it? My main man, Jean-Paul Sartre, he said, we are our choices. I think the world's a better place for it, surely, in most cases. Yeah, if you say so. For me, it's just like, I don't know, you know, when I'm playing a game like Dishonored, and obviously a game with, like, very basic morals, but I'm going for a good guy playthrough, it's like, okay, I'm not gonna kill this guard, I wanna be a pacifist. It would be easier to kill the guard, sure, but that's not the playthrough I'm doing. And in real life, that's not the playthrough I'm doing, so it's like, okay, I can put myself through a little bit more hassle, but ultimately the rewards will be worth it, because I'll feel better about myself, and if I'm having a crappy day, I can just think about all the guards I didn't kill <laughs> in real life, the real life equivalent, that's where the metaphor breaks down a bit, but I can just think about all the guards I didn't kill and feel good about myself. Whereas if I'm a dickhead and I'm having a bad day, all I'm thinking is, oh yeah, I deserve this. So I don't know, that's like one of the first... I feel like important lessons that video games taught me and not any particular video game just video games as a whole i think there's perhaps some value in choice-based games in opening up particularly young people in any any slice of life who perhaps hasn't experienced that much serious consequence to their actions i mean what's the biggest thing that happens when you're 12 or 13 i don't know maybe you get in trouble at school maybe you get a detention but to experience yeah, worlds yeah. where actually your decisions have actual impact on the lives around you, I think it's surely largely a good thing, young people being exposed to the idea of consequences to their actions on a major scale. Absolutely. And I mean, like, I don't know about you, maybe I'm just like sociopathic or whatever, but when I was that age, I didn't feel guilty about anything. I could do whatever I wanted and I would never feel guilt. That's not how being an adult works. Like, you feel remorse for your actions if you're a dickhead as an adult, and just having a game call you a dickhead for being one at a young age, sort of like, I know it sounds weird, but it kind of made me realize that, like, that's what I was in for. If I kept on being a dickhead, I'd be like, okay, I'm gonna feel like a dickhead when I'm older. I don't want that. Like, yeah, I still vape. Like, yeah, I drank for years, and I still eat really unhealthily. That's all fine. I don't want to hate being in my own head, though, you know? Hmm. Hmm. Well, it's interesting because your video on Silent Hill very much kind of analyzed this idea of karma being real, but not as an external factor, um, quite the opposite of being entirely internal, of regardless or not, other people knew of things that you had done or not done. The karma is an internal torch that will catch up to you. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of how I've always felt about it. I'm an atheist, and I don't believe in, like, anything metaphysical. Like, I don't believe if I hold the door open for people, someone else is going to hold the door for me or whatever. But if I hold the door for everybody I meet, when I walk into Walmart and see a bunch of people who, let's be real, are probably disgusting humans, I don't <laughs> see them that way. <laughs> I, I don't see them that way. I see them as potential door holders, you know? It just... It gives me, if I'm a good person, it gives me an optimism about humanity that 
I sure as hell didn't have when I was younger. I mean, fucking thanks to the wall right here, every single person I knew thought I was going to be a shooter. I, I kid you not. Um, I was very, very, very cynical. And now that I'm just treating my fellow man with respect, I uh, am way less cynical. And that is a very, very, very valuable feeling. Hmm. Why, why do you think, if you don't mind me asking, why do you think you were cynical when you were younger and where do you think the change kind of occurred? Um, I was a real loner growing up uh, and, I mean, that's fine. That's what made me so comfortable in my head where, like, I'm fine being this open about myself. Um, and this sort of led to, like, the typical nice guy attitude where, like, everyone's a jerk Every girl is a thought. <laughs> I mean, I guess we didn't say thought back then, but you get me. Like, everyone's just sheep. That's the way I always viewed it. Everyone around me is sheep, and I'm the only one who gets it, because everyone else listens to One Direction, but I'm listening to Pink Floyd. Man, the government's a sham for some reason. All that crap. Like, basically, I love Pink Floyd. The Wall's still my favorite album of all time. But they did me a little dirty between them and Nirvana. I, I really came out just this cynical little shit who just hated everyone and i mean that's why i flunked my ass through school i just couldn't care less about anything because i thought everything was bullshit and i mean a lot of stuff's still bullshit there's many things i'm still very cynical about but largely speaking i'm optimistic about the world and humanity and all that and i guess that sort of happened when i started smoking pot like i'm not here to endorse 16 year olds going out and getting high every day but that's what i did and it gave me this sort of devil may care attitude that i've held on to since i stopped because it was like, oh, wow, you're telling me all I need to turn a crappy day into a good one is just like $5 worth of pot and some time to myself? Hell yeah. And then I sort of realized all I need to turn a crappy day into a good day is just some time to myself. And uh, I don't know, it, it made me think less critically about people, which again, I'm big on not thinking about things critically because we're not that important. We don't need critical opinions on things as individuals. If I was the president, it'd be a different story, but I'm just some <laughs> fucking guy. Like, I do not need to be right about everything. I can just say things that make me feel good and think thoughts that make me feel good. And it's not like anyone else will ever be affected by that. So why not? Uh, I think 200,000 people are very positively affected by what you have to say. So, Well, still, it's, it's not like... Uh, it, it's not like if I go out and say that, like... I don't know. I, I can't think of anything to say that wouldn't be political. Uh, but if I go out and have some opinion about something that is, like, factually correct and is, like, awful as an individual, like, something that's frowned upon but is factually correct, I don't know. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. I'm in a position to, to say this. Say I went and, and this is not my opinion, but say I went and said something about, like, how transgendered people should be very fucking careful because of that 41% suicide rate or whatever. Say I went to talk about that. That is a statistic that will personally never impact my life because I'm just not that important. So I don't need to be thinking about that when I look at a transgendered person. It's like, who cares? They're just one person. I'm not looking at the whole of humanity here. I'm looking at one person. I'm not going to look at this one person and say, oh, there's a 41% chance they're going to commit suicide. That doesn't matter to me. That doesn't matter to them. If I was the president, that might matter, but I'm not that important. So why burden myself with thoughts that make me fucking sad that I will never be able to do anything about? 
when you say um, you're not that important, who who's the judgment there? Is that like in comparison to what? Because obviously in your measurement there, the president's important. Well, in comparison to the scale itself. I mean, like, I have 200,000 subs on YouTube, right? The town I live in has 3,000 people. On YouTube, sure, there's 200,000 people who listen to the shit I say. In my town, though... I'm not the mayor. I'm not making any important decisions that affect anyone's life except mine and, like, five people around me. So, it's not like I need to worry about crime statistics or whatever. You know, it's 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 not like I have to look at, like, a, a poor person and think, oh, they're more likely to rob for me because this big fucking number that I can't even wrap my head around says they are. They're just a person, and I have, like the power of judgment and observation i don't need to i'm not dealing with that many people in my real life and so i don't need to look at it as a matter of percentages and statistics you're a person i'm a person we can just be people i don't need to burden myself with all that because there's nothing i will do in my life unless i become president which i sure as hell don't want to (laughs) um that where those statistics will matter so I'm not going to say I'm not an important person, but on the scale of crime statistics and, like, suicide rates and stuff, I'm not an important person. You're you're weighing me against the whole of America or whatever. <laughs> hmm. Well, that have for president. Um... <laughs> Uh, well, it's interesting because you, you mentioned um, the trans statistics, and of course that's something you touched upon on your recent video. Uh, as well, would you mm. like to chat a little bit about that? Because I, well, I think uh, first, first, firstly, I'll say sorry. Um, the undoubtedly positive impact that is both seen and unseen in your comment section from people who are not yet confident or feel safe enough to be out in terms of exploring um, their identity in that kind of manner. So I think there's undoubtedly huge positive impacts that go unseen and unrecognized in your comment section. Yeah, I really think it was important that I do that. And for anyone who doesn't know, in my um, 200k subscribers video, it was called, like, making a video out of my first script and then opening up about myself. Um, at the end, I came out as uh, trans-questioning, hence the wig I was wearing in the beginning and the obviously stuffed bra and all that. Um, so that's what he's talking about. Um, I just sort of felt like there were multiple reasons it was important for me to do this. And I touched on it in the video, but I hate these words, but as in influencer in a minority situation i think it's kind of important for me to wear it on my sleeve because i myself my parents are very loving they're very accepting of this but i was still hiding this shit for five six fucking years before i ever told anyone about it and i know how much that fucking sucks and so i think it's important for someone who a lot of people watch to say like yeah this is me it's fine i'm valid you're valid too we're all valid let's not worry about this so much let's be more open about this because fear is how xyz phobes win um so i just that that was a big part of it it's like i have the instagram where i talk about it and that whole instagram is dedicated to just like oh here's the first razor i found that really worked on my legs and was like quick and easy to use or whatever stuff like that just genuinely helpful practical advice for people in this situation but it's like oh okay i'll talk about that there where i have 200 followers but on the main channel where it's a a thousand times that fuck no that would be such a shitty way of looking at it like for me to say 
yeah, be yourself, but only when a couple people can see it. <laughs> That's awful. That's completely hypocritical and contrary to every feeling I have about this. So I just thought it was really important to do that, even though it's not all that relevant to my content. And uh, the other reason is just, as I said, I'm trans-questioning. I'm trying to figure out how I feel and how I like. So if I'm comfortable talking to sitting on the biggest pedestal I will ever sit on and saying this stuff, then I'm really comfortable with it and I know that there's something to this and it's not as much of a phase as maybe it was. At this point, I'm pretty confident it's not and it's just a matter of time before I transition, but we'll see. Mm. And I think it's um, it's nice as well that it's okay to be within that questioning stage of not defining into anyone it doesn't you know people are not forced to fit immediately with any sort sense of immediacy into a particular one it is acceptable to be questioning for people who are who are not quite there yet and who are still figuring and stuff out and i mean out. it's important and it's important to feel that way because this is like if i ever decide to transition and this goes for everybody who does that's like pretty much the biggest decision I'll make in my entire life. I mean, short of getting married or having kids, like, it does not get much more drastic than that. And that is something that is more or less permanent, depending on how far you take it. And, you know, I've seen a lot of people who, as soon as they come out as trans or whatever, they just instantly, like, you know, if, if you're a male to female, they just instantly abandon their masculine side and try to become, like, Belle Delphine or something. Uh, or the other side of that, like, they go from, like, uh, if they're a female to male, they just instantly become, like, a fucking lumberjack. And I'm like, you had a feminine side and a masculine side before this, just like every human. So if you aren't comfortable in that questioning phase and just jump from one extreme to the other you lose a part of your personality through your transition. And I think that that is so sad. Like the whole point of this thing is to be yourself and abandoning yourself so that you can be more like the thing you were missing. To me, that just says that you rushed it and you didn't have time to question, which I know that's presumptuous. Everyone's situation is different, but that's sort of the big thing I've been very aware of and like trying to watch out for is, you know, okay, I start painting my nails, whatever. That's one thing. But if it gets to the point where it's like everywhere I go, it's just like, oh my God, yes. Like I'm just being a caricature, just trying to be as femme as possible about everything. Then I've lost a part of myself. I have a masculine side too. You know, everyone does, man or woman, trans or cis. Like you don't want to abandon your personality in pursuit of a part of your personality you didn't get to express is I guess the best way to put it. Hmm. Forgive me as it's as it's not a game, but um, you uh, not a video game. I should I should add. Sorry, you did a very good video about gender roles uh, in regard to Fight Club, which is traditionally only kind of critically explored in regards to masculinity. But that one, you you spoke about both gender roles in that. Yeah, I mean that's sort of the first time I ever brought up these ideas about losing a part of your personality in a transition or in pursuit of fitting into your gender assigned or otherwise. Um. I just think that as someone who, like, at the time, nobody knew this, but at the time, I was thinking about gender stuff a lot. Um, it's a message that applies to both genders perfectly well. It's just in this instance, they use man and they use, uh, you know, the, the stereotypes and the zeitgeist 
archetypes or whatever of men, you know, fighting, drinking beer, smoking cigarettes, you know, living in some shitty house, having sex with some girl, like she says in the fucking movie, uh, nobody's fucked me like that since grade school or something. Like, it's all about just being a hyper-masculine. But the same thing can go for women, too. I mean, like I said, it would be basically the same movie if it was all female characters and it was called Book Club, you know? Just with mm. a very different tone. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. Oh, man. Okay. Um, well, let's then do a little segue then. Um, I'm debating to go between two things. Tell you what, let's let's do the shirt first, because that is a hell of a shirt you're wearing. I'm a big fan of it. Oh, yeah. This is my merch. New merch dropping soon. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is from the first drop, but uh, we've got some very cool stuff. we got a poster up there, a phone case over there that I will not bother to show. They're on my Twitter. You can see them there. Um, but yeah, that's happening soon. I'm going to have my own website and everything. It's awesome. Yeah, uh, that's awesome. Um, okay, well, let's <laughs> jump into, of course, um, the show My First Thousand um, is all is all about um, how and why YouTubers got started. And before we get on to kind of the main growth, you've spoken a bit about your original intentions with the channel. But if you just kind of, hmm, if you could kind of rehash the first couple of months of the videos you were making, what were your intentions when you got started? Well, like I said, um, and I don't mean to call out the friend and question, but uh, during my stoner years, which was like four years of just smoking pot every day, every day, never, never sober, um, it was just me and this guy I gamed with, and he was the friend I was talking about when I said he, he was raised on like 360 no scope DMs on uh, on Modern Warfare 2 Rust, um, and. It was just me and him smoking pot and playing video games every day. And I remember one day, uh, I was like, dude, you gotta play this game Prey, it's so cool. Knowing him now, it's totally not his type of game, and that's fine. But I got him to play it, and he just wasn't thinking about it the same way I was. He was like, uh, you know, he wasn't like reading the signs and stuff to know where he was. He would be like halfway through a quest and not know what his objective was, just following the quest markers and stuff. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that's just, I'm like, all right, that's a kind of standard way of thinking about games. And I think that that is such a boring way of thinking about them. When if you do just take that extra step and get really immersed and really pay attention and invest yourself in the story, you get such a rich experience that like nobody's talking about. And um, basically the point of the channel at the beginning and to a lesser degree now is letting people know like hey there's nothing cringe about like getting really invested in a game and like really caring about it you're going to have a fantastic experience as a result and the first video i ever did was on prey and i was talking about the meta narrative there which uh you know you can go watch the video um and it was kind of just hey look at these things and take them super seriously because they were made by people who really, really, really care more than you ever could. And if you can tap into some of that, you will have, like, some of the richest experiences in your life. You know, I've had richer experiences with games than I have with any movie, any book, any album, or anything. Like, games are fucking special if you really treat them with the respect they deserve. And that's sort of what it was always about, was just showing people how to treat them with respect, I guess. And yeah, showing people how to treat them with respect and showing people that it's fun and rewarding to do so. Um, okay. In regard to, you mentioned your friend, Re um, 
not stopping to read the signs. I would say there's a consistent downward trend over the past couple of decades where games such as Half-Life 2 do not really at all hold your hand uh, in terms of how they tell the story. And progressively, we've kind of seen more and more hand-holding in the terms of quest markers and waypoints, as you describe. And I worry that there's kind of a decline in which the richness, I guess one could argue, of these narrative games is left to the player to figure out. Uh, I don't know if you agree with that. I do to a certain degree. See, the reason something changes, obviously, like in any you know progressive art form, is that there was something wrong with it. And while System Shock 2 is one of my favorite games, Thief 2 is one of my favorite games, I play Dishonored with the quest markers turned off and all that, there is something fundamentally wrong with the idea of not forcing someone to pay attention, but forcing people to sort of just trial and error. Because a game like Thief 2, or Dishonored, or Prey, you can really pay attention and you will never be left scratching your head as to what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to do it. But that's not how it went with the majority of the games. Uh, that came out at that time. Like, in the late 90s, everyone knows the stereotype about 90s games is you are going to have to use a walkthrough at one point or another. And I think that's more an example of, like, games that don't really get it sort of pissing in the tub, like, spoiling it for everyone, pissing in the pool, I guess. Um, Where, yeah, okay, a game creator as fucking genius as, like, uh, Harvey Smith... He can make a game that gives you very little direction and you still know what to do because you were paying attention. Game creators that aren't quite as talented, no, they can't do that. And while the really talented game creators still can and still do in cases like Prey, which only came out in 2016, 2017, um, they're still making those games... Except now everyone's been accustomed to waypoints, so they have those included, but you can turn them off and still understand it and still know what to do and still not get lost. But, um, you know, not every game creator is Harvey Smith. You need <laughs> sort of a simpler format that's easier to understand because I, I don't want to say less talented game creators, but less talented game creators can't deliver that same consistency and same immersion that allows you to go without UI elements and still play the game, you know, richly and thoroughly so i think ultimately it's a good thing that we've sort of normalized many maps and quest markers and you know journals that tell you exactly what your objectives were in case you weren't paying attention because while there are exceptions again most creators don't have the talent to like make a quest that you get invested in and could not possibly forget the objective to um and it just isn't sustainable. There aren't enough talented game creators to have a gaming ecosystem where every game is this big, thought-provoking piece where you gotta really pay attention to get it. So, for the sake of having more games to play, which is always a good thing, I think it's good that we've moved towards more hand-holding. But, you know, there's extremes on both ends. Games that don't give you nearly enough hand-holding and games that give you way too much. I think something like Half-Life 2 sort of rides the line perfectly because there's no quest markers or anything, just really, really smart level designers with tons and tons and tons of playtesting, so you don't get lost, but you don't feel like your hand is being held that much either. And that's just another reason Half-Life 2 is, like, objectively, if you ask me, one of the best games ever made. Mm. 
So when you started, you were doing um, pretty consistent videos along this kind of strand of thinking. And you had kind of the low hundreds in subscribers at the time. And then you had one, which I believe was a TF2 video, which was the first kind of oh, the hit, hit virality. There's a little bit of a story with what happened with that. Yeah, I'm surprised you even know about that. Um, so basically, I was at like 300 subscribers. And I put up this video called Team Fortress 2 is Coming Back. That's the worst case of worst case of clickbaiting I've ever done. <laughs> what I meant by that is Creators TF gives me that same experience I've heard so many stories about. About like what Team Fortress 2 was like before the Meet Your Match update, which added casual. And before the game went free to play, which added like mountains and mountains of noobs who don't really care about the game. And basically, it taught me to be cautious of something in my writing that I was not thinking about before. And that is that people are going to assume the worst out of you no matter what, period. Whether you're on the internet or whatever, people are going to assume the worst. So if you're not considering the worst when you're writing a script, you're probably going to say something that sounds pretty bad out of context. And in the case of that video, this opinion is so not mine and it was so far off my mind that I wasn't even on the lookout for it. And that's the lesson I learned. But I really gave off the energy of someone who just hated new players and thought they had no place in Team Fortress 2. Which, obviously, that's not the case. You need new players to keep the game from dying. And I want to see new players get better and all that. But um, what I was saying is, it's kind of good that there's a slight barrier to entry to Creators TF. Because Casual's still out there. More people than ever are still playing casual, you know, the public servers. Um, but on Creators TF, it's like, okay, only someone who like really likes Team Fortress 2 is going to be playing on these servers. And the result of that is, you don't get... You, you get, like, a really wholesome, genuine slice of, like, TF2 community culture, in a way. Where it's not, like, a bunch of people who are only playing the game because it's free or in your server. And I don't care if they're bad or whatever. It's just that they aren't really a part of the conversation we've been having for all this time. I know this sounds so gatekeepy, which is what everybody said. But again, it's like... I just had a great time on those servers because I could trust my teammates to understand how the game is played. You know, you never see snipers running around with the SMG because it's the only automatic weapon that you can run with and they think instantly that makes it the best gun in the game or anything like that. It's like, okay, here's a medic who's healing me and he's like looked at me and we've locked eyes and I'm a demo man or a soldier or something. I could be confident he's going to uber charge me and we can go have a great moment because of that. Whereas on casual... Who the fuck knows what the medic's going to do, you know? Um, I know we're talking more about specific things that are only relevant to people who play the game, but um, it just gave me this great sense of community that I've never really had in Team Fortress 2 before, where it's like, everyone here loves TF2, and that's not something you can get in casual. But of course, if I'm not looking at the script from that perspective, or if I'm only looking at the script from that perspective... I completely miss out on the fact that this kind of makes it sound like I just hate new players. And so that video, because I clickbaited it so hard, got like 200,000 views, which is still a pretty good view count for a leadhead video to this day, even though I was at 300 subs at the time. And that got me up to 600 subs. It was the biggest boom I'd ever seen. But all the comments were so fucking negative, and I just didn't want to have a video out there that was promoting a toxic view, even if I didn't mean it to, and that's not my view. It was still promoting a toxic view, so that was the first video I've ever taken down. Taken down two others since then. I'm not gonna get into it, it's not interesting. Um, 
But yeah, uh, that's where I got like my first ever quote unquote boom from. And that was like a big moment for me because that's sort of part of how I toughened my skin a little bit, which is very important. if you're going to be in the public eye like this, uh, it made me not really care if I got a million evil comments or misunderstanding comments. I should say not evil. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that was just a valuable lesson for me in multiple ways. One, I need to look at my script through the eyes of a cynic. And two, uh, I need to not let negative comments get to me because they're always going to be there. And I was very bad at taking criticism in the beginning. It's not like I was out there arguing with people online or anything, but it would just like crush my motivation. You know, I could read like a hundred really, and still to this day, to a certain degree, I can read like 500 positive comments and be like, hell yeah, feeling good. Read one negative comment and it's all I'm thinking about for the next like 10 minutes. It used to be all I think about for the next like month. So I've gotten a lot better. <laughs> Seeing seeing your comment section, it seems very much in terms of the upper echelons of positivity as as a subscriber base goes, though. There does seem to be very much uh, on the positive side. Well, let's then talk about that one week, one hell of a week that you had, I believe around June or July last year, where you then went from 600 subscribers to 100,000 subscribers in the space of what? Was it one, one week or, or one like, month? Two weeks to... I mean, the boom sort of kept on past 100,000 subs. So let's just say in less than a month, I went from 600 subscribers to about 140, which I'm sure it's happened. Like maybe Wayne's Radio TV, something like that happened to um, after the sentient AI thing went so big. But I've never heard of it. I've never personally witnessed it. So from my perspective, that's like completely unprecedented. Um and it was fucking insane. Like, I was still at a point where, like, I, the Discord server was, like, dead as hell. Nobody was there. Naturally, it was a channel with 600 subs. Of course, there's going to be, like, 30 people in the Discord. And then just instantly, in the span of one month, I'm, like, turning on shit to make it so I don't get notifications when somebody sends me a message on Discord. I'm turning on shit so I don't get, like, any notifications for anything because it is just the most overwhelming experience of my entire life to suddenly have so many people trying to send me DMs. And even if they're positive ones, which they pretty much have all been, it's just like, I don't know. When I see a positive DM, I appreciate it, obviously, but that puts pressure on me in a way. It's like, I always say that, like, creative work is a constant battle against your own ever-declining ego, and um, seeing people appreciate your work and say that it's great just sort of makes you, makes the enemy there bigger. It's like, oh, here's this even bigger image of myself I have to stand up to and live up to. And obviously, again, I really appreciate every positive comment and DM and all that, but when I, when I was getting so many of them, which it's all slowed down by now because that boom, like I don't get nearly as many daily subs as I did during that boom. It was like 10,000 a day at the time. Um, so way less new people seeing the channel, way less DMs coming in. But when it was that many, I swear to God, it was like a panic attack that I was so thankful to be having. <laughs> it was a very <laughs> weird part of my life. Uh, but it's just, I don't know. It was like constant pressure to always be my absolute best, which nobody can do. I mean, I'm vaping on this, took the wig off, I'm surprised I haven't coughed yet, but uh, <laughs> nobody can just be like Superman all the time, that's not how it works, but when you see so many people constantly throughout the day telling you you're great, 
or whatever. <laughs> I know this is like fucking first world problems out the ass or whatever, <laughs> but when you see that so hard, it's like, oh, geez, I really got to live up to this. Fuck that. I, I scratch my ass just like everyone else. They don't want to see that. Like, it, it was a lot of pressure, but it's better. Again, that's another case where my skin is toughened up. Now I can look at like, oh, I got five DMs today and be like, all right, cool, whatever. Which I don't mean to sound dismissive, but it's like, whatever, as opposed to, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. It's definitely a healthier way of thinking about it. Yeah. Because there's um, no time either for an adjustment period in terms of scaling. Yeah. That's what it was, was it was just zero to a hundred instantly, and I was not prepared. Yeah. That sounds very, very tricky. Well, something that you've mentioned in terms of mental health and keeping your positivity is you actually had a routine you've mentioned before of taking your guitar um, and going out and dri- driving nearby. So would you like to tell us a little bit about this kind of ritual that you have? No, I'm not doing it so much this time of year because it's winter. But um, the other part of that ritual, which I don't really talk about that much, is that I just fucking love driving. It's just my thing. It's not like I'm a car nut. I don't know shit about how my car works. It's a jalopy. It's falling apart. But just driving is just so important to me. I mean, when I was having my vertigo, which has gotten a whole lot better since I started with the trans stuff and moved out and all that. Um, but when I was having my vertigo, I literally couldn't sit in the kitchen and talk to my mom for five minutes without feeling like I had to go lay down. But I could go and drive for like four hours and be totally fine. Which, uh, I mean, if anything is going to give me motion sickness, it should be driving, right? But I'm just so at peace there that it didn't. Uh, so... During the winter months, that's kind of how I do my ritual. I just drive around. I uh, go to a coffee shop. Not a coffee shop. I go to a fucking gas station, a 24-7 gas station, grab my 3 a.m. coffee, just like I did tonight, um, and just cruise for a bit, drink my coffee, and just take myself out of it all. Because that was the whole point of the guitar thing, is it's like, it's a reminder that no matter how big this thing gets, no matter how depressed I get, or whatever the fuck happens in the rest of the world... I can still just retreat to my little bubble and just be happy. And that's what the driving thing is, too. So it's it's always been about making a part of my life not be centered around YouTube because it feels like everything else I do is. I mean, when I'm having a bad day, like I'm stressed out about YouTube stuff or whatever, what I do very often is I get in my car and I record a vlog that never gets uploaded, but I don't treat it like that. I'm like, you know, you guys have been watching me for a while if you're seeing this. Like, you know, yada, yada, yada. Even though I'm just talking to myself. Or when I write my journals, which I don't do too often, I write them in the form of scripts. (laughs) It's like everything in my life is YouTube. And everything in my life is YouTube except for going out to the baseball diamond and playing guitar and except for going on my little coffee runs and driving around. It's just an escape from... The monotony, I guess, as weird as it is to call something like this monotonous, it's an escape from that. It's a chance to think about something else, like check in with myself that I don't really get to do normally, even though my work is so personal. It's like I kind of lose touch with myself if I don't do that. I'd run out of material in a week if I didn't. (laughs) I'd imagine as well being able to, I guess, the independence of taking that drive you know being alone out there particularly at that kind of time that coffee must taste bloody fantastic like that must oh, be it's the personification of hitting different you know <laughs> it's garbage garbage gas station coffee in fact the reason i drink it is because my good coffee at home is too strong and i get the jitters um <laughs> but it's like 
it's just become part of my tradition. Just go to the gas station, get the coffee from like the same two cashiers every night, and then just be alone with the shitty coffee and just enjoy it. And uh, I don't know, it's... For me, coffee is like about as spiritual as I ever get. I'm like a good cup of coffee can change your fucking day, change your life even. Um, and any coffee will do if the mood is right, and that's the mood. And the crappy coffee is part of that mood. I don't know, it's very vague, pretentious art student shit, but uh, it helps me a lot, I know that. I mean, it's been a long time since I didn't have my nightly gas station coffee. <laughs> You've probably played Life is Strange, I just wanted to check that you had. Yeah, yeah. Awesome, okay. Um, in which case then, I think there's something... Um, if you'll excuse the stereotype, immensely American about the experience <laughs> of um, driving your truck, seeking independence, and kind of escaping adolescence and maturity uh, that we often find both in real life um, and in media such as Life is Strange, um, in mm-hmm, driving absolutely. your trucks out there um, and around the world. I think um, there are two main games, Life is Strange and the uh, Telltale series that at the end of a huge choice-based narrative it offers you a percentage of how many other players chose the same as you did which i think is a very interesting mechanic in terms of the gratification and kind of satisfaction we get at evaluating our choices against other people i don't know uh, how you feel about those um mechanics. that's an interesting question that was not on my radar um the way i I've never really thought about it too much. I sort of always just dismiss it as like, okay, this is just like a thing for Twitter posters or whatever. I kind of think that's what it is, though, because for me, again, art is a mirror. Art is about you, the observer, and the choices you make in a Walking Dead game, or or Telltale's Walking Dead, I should say, or Life is Strange or whatever. They are there to tell you about yourself, you know, um, more than they are to tell you about the characters or whatever. That's there so that you can see how you think in a way. And, um, I kind of think the statistic thing totally undermines that. Like, I don't want to see that shit. Uh, mm. I just wanted to be like, I want to be focused on what I did. I don't want to think about, like, what Chad did or Stacy. I, I just want to be thinking, like, if it showed me what decisions I made, which it does, I'd be like, okay, this is a good chance. This is a good chance to, like, go over the lessons, I guess you could say. But, um, in the case of the statistics, I'm like, who gives a shit? Like, I don't care about that. I don't I don't care that, like, many people disagree with me on this issue. I care about why I decided that choice. And, um, I really, like I said, I it was kind of just a dismissive thought, but I kind of think it's fair to say that, for me, at least in my view, that is pretty much just there for the purposes of people who want to tweet about it, which is obviously a very important part of a game's hype cycle and marketing, is Twitter and people getting excited about sharing their decisions. Um... But yeah, I mean, if I could have it my way, and if money was no object, and nobody cared how many people played their game, I, I would not include that. Mm, perhaps it's something they should consider as a toggle. Would you like to see? Because what what you said there, I had I'd never considered, which is that you didn't want to see it. Because I guess that kind of reflects real life, is you don't get the confirmation as to what the other path would have been. Yeah, because I mean, again, you know, it's not about the work of art; it's about me. I don't care about how people as a whole responded to it i care about how i responded to it because that's what i'm here to learn about every time anyone's looking at any art 
you know, I don't watch the Stan- I don't watch The Shining to learn about Stanley Kubrick. I watch it to learn about me. You know, I I was watching The Shining with a friend one time, and I watched him recover a memory of his father, which obviously we were watching The Shining. It was not a good memory. He wasn't fucking thinking about Stanley Kubrick's intentions when that happened. He was thinking about his life, and he had a very powerful moment that he was delivered because of that fact, because he wasn't caught up about the work critically. He was caught up about what it meant to him. Hmm. God. I, I, I honestly think there's so few um, people on YouTube, at least in this space, that have as much emphasis as you do on how much it is about you. Uh, as you say, as a reflection that you're planning to learn about yourself. I, all, all the essays are about the character, the character's intentions, but yeah. I think you've got something really important there. I think that the critical way of looking at things has educational value, which is important. If you want a game that surpasses Thief 2, you need to be critical about Thief 2, or whatever. Um, but again, it's like, I'm not a fucking game creator. Not, I mean, I want to be, but 99% of my audience aren't game creators. Why should they really care about the critical aspects? Like, do your comments on, you know, game trailers really matter that much? Do your Twitter arguments about why Far Cry 4 sucks really matter that much? No, you're not in the seat of authority. None of us really are. So why, kind of like what I was saying about, like, messy, ugly statistics, like, why bog yourself down with critical thoughts when they're critical thoughts that don't matter to anybody (laughs) and will never impact anything you do? Like, if you're a game creator and you want to go, like, say, you know, to your team, this is what Far Cry 4 did wrong, go for it. But... If you're just arguing about it on Twitter with people who like the game, what the hell are you doing? Like, let them like the game and then go figure out shit you like. Acknowledge that it has flaws if you want to, but don't let the flaws define it. Let the good qualities define it. And the good qualities are subjective, so look at it subjectively and you'll be happier, is the way I've always viewed it. Mm. I don't know. It's, It's all very vague metaphorical shit no 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 it's abstract shit but it's uh i don't know it's brought me a lot of happiness it's made me enjoy games that a younger me would have fucking hated so must be something to it (laughs) it's important to think about and uh it's not simple to think about which i guess is good because as you say it forces introspection yeah and i think that's so important you got to be self-aware I guess we, we've run a little over time, so uh, if it's okay, I guess we'll close then with one mm-hmm. final little line of questioning, um, which is essentially about maturity. And we're going to examine kind of two immensely profound videos uh, that you made, which was one which was about the coffee shop and also about Earthbound. So games like this are focused on such a transformative um time of maturation throughout BPZ and that sort of thing and the dramatic shifts in which we go through in those two years um, what is the value I guess of being forced to confront these horrific changes to particularly audiences who are around that age I think it's super important because when you're really young you're feeling things way harder than you will in like the rest of your life I mean like Disco Elysium, probably my favorite game of all time, is one of the only instances where I feel like I have felt something to the core in the same way I did when I was a child. When I when I was at like Disney World when I was like eight, 
they had this ride with like dinosaurs or something and it was so loud and really fucking scary and it fucked up the whole vacation for me and like there is that risk but ultimately you got to capitalize on that you are feeling things so hard when you're a kid and that means you can learn the really important lessons through that feeling you know um so something like earthbound it is about a kid you know slowly learning that the world is a pretty fucked up place and through that learning uh figuring out how to fortify themselves against it and not fucking blow their brains out the moment they hit 18 and i just think that scaring kids as funny as this sounds i think scaring kids is super important because it teaches them to not be afraid you know and it teaches them that there will be challenges in life and it helps them not give up when they get to those challenges i mean i'll tell you right now if i didn't play games that like were fucking scary and watched movies that were scary and shit when i was a kid i would be way more spineless right now which i'm already pretty spineless but um it it's just important to challenge kids you don't want to coddle them too much and i'm not saying go let your kids play postal 2 or something no fucking no adult should be playing that game but um if you coddle your kids you're gonna get some weak ass kids who like don't get passionate about things because they never got passionate about shit as a kid they don't get invested in things they aren't interesting they don't they're just fine riding the middle and uh just riding the wake and that is so tragic to me to set up a kid for a boring life like the biggest turnoff for me in the world is someone who isn't passionate about shit doesn't want to take chances is just like a boring person with nothing to talk about and you make boring per you make boring people by giving them safe boring childhoods and uh you know all i know is that a child who had a really turbulent or exciting or interesting and varied life is probably going to have a more interesting adult life than the kid who you know just rode the wave and didn't and wasn't exposed to anything scary I mean, like, I remember the fucking Lego movie. Obviously a kid's movie. I saw some asshole on Fox talking about how it was teaching kids to be a communist because the, the, the villain's name is, like, Mr. Business or something. And I'm like, one, quit pushing your fucking agenda on six-year-olds. Two, um, you're not, you're just gonna act like everything is fine because there's kids here? Like, I'm not, I think it's fucking despicable how I know, like, six-year-old kids who know what a pedophile is. That's awful. But... To not have the kid be challenged at all, to not expose them to anything scary, just means you are robbing them of some of the richest years of their life and setting them up to ultimately prefer safe, boring, lame, when there's so much more to be felt than that. You know, you only get one life and you're really going to waste it on the familiar. And I know that's a lot coming from me, who's barely fucking left this room this week, but you know it scares kids away from challenging thoughts and that's how you get boring people who seemingly don't care about anything beyond like the lakers or whatever god yeah i i completely agree that's wonderful god yeah just prep your kids to the future give them challenges because they're gonna fucking hate their life otherwise yeah the world is a very hard place, very difficult place. Reminds me, of, there, there's a quote at, 
towards the end of the film Boyhood, which is essentially all about adolescence growing up. And he says, uh, and the dad says to the kid, the older you get, the, the less you feel. Uh, your skin gets tougher. And I think that's such a shame because, yeah, the we feel our absolute extremes, certainly, throughout our childhood. And everything just gets a bit duller. And the edges are dulled the older we get. And I think that's a shame in a lot of ways. It does. And I mean, like, I played Earthbound for the first time when I was, like, 14. Which, you know, I knew what, like, a hooker was at 14 or whatever. I knew about <laughs> drugs and all that. Legend. And, like, alcoholics and all that. But, um... That game... I won't say it, like, scared me, because I was 14. I'm, I'm too old to be scared by Earthbound. Other than Guy, I guess that shit's just creepy even now. Um, but... It sort of set me up to be like, wow, I can really feel shit because of these games. I know I'm young, so I'm feeling things more. It's not like I was thinking that at the time, but I was young, so I was feeling things more. But it set me up to allow myself to be vulnerable to myself. It's like, okay, I'm feeling big fucking thoughts when I'm watching Paula pray for the safety of her friends and the ending of Earthbound. And as a result of that, I became okay with feeling things. I, I was able to let my guard down, even though it was just a conversation between me and the game. You know, I still had my guard up because I was young. I had my pride. And, you know, especially the ending of Mother 3, when I'm fucking crying at a video game, I'm like, all right, I'm letting my guard down and I'm feeling really special thoughts because of that. And if it wasn't for me having experiences like that at a younger age, I sure as hell wanted to have, like, completely had, like, a mental breakdown, new awakening, self-discovery, incredible experience with, like, Death Stranding and Planescape Torment and Disco Elysium and all these games that have completely changed the way I think about my life as an adult, I would not let my guard down if that was the childhood I grew up with. But because I played these games that challenged me as a kid, you know, mentally, I don't mean, like, mechanically or whatever, I'm able to let my guard down as an adult, and I've learned and I've become a smarter, happier... I'll just say better person because of it because I I dropped some of my bullshit pride that wasn't doing me any good mm. well I think you have um, completely proved the value of emotional introspection and I think it is an immense shame a lot of people go through life without that um, it's important it's all you got really yeah, it's scary to not self-examine and, and ch I guess check yourself is, is is the phrase. But Yeah, I mean, like I said, and I don't mean to ramble, but like I said in that Disco Elysium video, like, your little ball is the only place you'll ever really inhabit. You know, you don't, you don't own anything but that. And if you aren't familiar with that space, someday you'll have nothing at all. As opposed to having nothing at all save for a comfortable room in your head. Mm. well thank you so much for joining us today and sharing with us um, your thoughts both introspective and uh, of course critically about games thank you as well for sharing your journey as to how you've gone from zero to 200k um, <laughs> and yeah I hope you have a wonderful day thank you so much for joining us Leadhead thank you it's been a great time and if I have one more uh, if I can get one more thing to say uh, investigate pork brain lore. There's a story there that nobody's picking up on. Every video is canon. Check it out. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Thank you so much for joining us. Bye-bye.